Now remember, John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. He was born to Elizabeth, Mary's sister, and John was born about six months before Jesus was born. So it's very likely that these two, John the Baptist and Jesus, grew up together, spent time wrestling with one another in the streets of Nazareth, right? Hanging out, you know, and just causing trouble. No, not with Jesus. He wouldn't have been causing trouble. John the Baptist, maybe, but not Jesus. But here they are growing up together. They know each other. But now John emerges in the wilderness of Judea, and he's preaching a preparatory message for all of Israel to hear. This is a message for the people of Israel to turn their hearts to the Lord because the one that they've been waiting for, the one that they've been expecting, the Messiah, is now here. And now that the Messiah is here, guess what? The kingdom of heaven, John says, is now at hand. It's arrived, it's, it's here for us. Now, Matthew uses that term kingdom of heaven very exclusively. You won't see kingdom of heaven in, in the other gospels, Mark, Luke, or John. They'll use kingdom of God. But understand, these two terms are used interchangeably. They're synonymous, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. But Matthew's the only one that uses kingdom of heaven. Why? Because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and they were very particular. They're very, very concerned about not taking the name of the Lord in vain, so much so that they wouldn't even write out in full the name of God. So because of that kind of conviction and sensitivity, Matthew seems like he's gonna go with kingdom of heaven and not kingdom of God. So not to kind of rattle anybody in this here, but understand it's speaking of the same thing, kingdom of God. And what that's speaking of, kingdom of heaven, is the sphere of rule and reign of the Lord. It's God's rule and reign over the world or over that particular area. Now, the reason so many people missed uh, Jesus at his first coming was because they thought the Messiah would come and arrive on the scene and then usher in this kingdom of God and in so doing would overthrow, you know, Roman rule and their oppression and they would establish, this Messiah would establish Israel's dominance and sovereignty as a nation again. So that's kind of the mindset of Jewish thinking about the Messiah coming on the scene. It was equated with oh, we're gonna once again be, you know, the superpower of the world. We're gonna have our king on the throne and we're no longer gonna have to deal with Rome any longer. They expected the Messiah to be this kind of political leader. That was their expectations and expectations can be very misleading and, and lead us astray, can't they? It's like many of you, when you were getting married, you had expectations about what marriage is gonna be like. You men thought, oh man, it's gonna be wonderful to come home every night to a home-cooked meal, to laundry being done, to a house that's nice and clean for a change. It's gonna be great. You ladies had expectations of your men coming, just doting on you, bringing you flowers, having someone to have long, meaningful conversations with. Expectations that don't always Go your way, right? We've all experienced that, I'm sure, at times. But what we fail to realize is that those expectations come about, that happiness and joy come about by living a yielded and sacrificial life to our spouse. It's much the same way when it comes to Jesus, what Jesus had for his people. See, he came to establish a different sort of kingdom at his first coming because he came to set up his rule and his reign in the hearts of men. Yes, the kingdom of heaven was at hand, but it was in a very different manner. That's maybe why Matthew uses that term kingdom of heaven, was to say this is going to take on a spiritual nature. It's not going to be an earthly kingdom right now, just yet. 
Oh, it will be one day when Jesus comes back again and establishes his millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ on this earth, which will come at a second coming at the end of the tribulation. Oh, that's gonna happen one day. And it's gonna be a reign of righteousness and justice and peace. It's gonna be great. But I'm sure what Matthew has in mind with the kingdom of heaven is that this is right now at Christ's first coming, gonna take on his spiritual nature. It's gonna happen from within, in a sense. It's gonna be that reign and rule of Christ upon the throne of your heart. That's why Jesus would say in Luke 17, when he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, that he answered saying, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here, or see there, there it is. He says, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. See, that's the reality for us today. We can experience that kingdom of God as we surrender and give our hearts over to the very king, which is Jesus Christ. We give our lives over to the rule of Jesus Christ. Is he occupying the throne of your heart today? Is he occupying the throne of your heart? Are you experiencing his peace and righteousness in your life today? Because those are the qualities and the characteristics of the kingdom. Now, in order to experience these things, John comes along and he says, repent. And interesting, those are the first recorded words of Jesus in Mark's gospel in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now that word repent is a very good, interesting word. It's a word that's kind of thrown around without really maybe many of us understanding what it really means. Well, in the Greek, it's the word Metano, oh, this pen's not working. Metanoeo, metanoeo, all right? And, that's what, and, and what that means is to have a change of mind. Is that working out there? Okay, a change of mind, but it's more than just having a change of mind. It's more than just that. It's about having a, a change of direction. You understand you've been going this way but now you realize you have a change of mind. This is not a good way. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way death Proverbs tells us. You're going this way, but you repent. You go, I don't think that's good. I need to change direction. I need to go God's way. You change not just your mind, but you change direction. See, this word repent is a, is a verb. It's in, it's in the active imperative. In other words, it's an ongoing active action that we are to be taking in our lives. And it's not just a suggestion. Not just, hey, you know, maybe you might want to try. It's, it's a command. Here's what you need to do to enter into the kingdom of God is you need to repent. It's a command for us. It's the only way to be saved. We're not just to feel bad, you see, about our sin. We're not just to admit we're sinners. We're to put our trust in Jesus as the only one who can forgive us and make us new and remove our sin altogether. That's the idea of repentance. See, when my, when my wife first met me, she had a, a certain view of me. She had a certain mindset towards me that needed to change. She needed to, and, and there came a day when she repented and she changed her mind. She says, you know what? Not only am I gonna think differently about Brent, this young guy with a mullet that she didn't really care for, but she says, you know what? I'm not just gonna change my mind. I'm gonna change direction. I'm gonna go his way. I'm gonna go on a date with him. I'm gonna track with him and 28 years later, here we are, the rest is history, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, so, 
So that's kind of the idea of repentance. And it's an on, she needs to ongoingly repent too, right? It's, it's kind of the, it's an active imperative, a, a, an ongoing thing that she needs. No, but you get the idea. So the nation of Israel is very much in need of this. And I think it's very fitting that it tells us that John came preaching in the wilderness. Why? Because this is exactly where Israel has been. They've not been having a repentant heart. They've been walking away from the Lord. It's been 400 plus years since they've had any prophetic voice from God speaking to them. They've been in a dry and barren place. They've been in the wilderness spiritually. And so here John comes now in the wilderness with a message of, of hope, with a message of truth, with a message of change. Malachi was the last of the prophets to speak to them. And interestingly, we read in, in the book of Malachi, chapter four, verse five to six, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now what's interesting is John the Baptist would be fulfilling this very verse in part. Jesus would say in Matthew 11, verse 13 to 14, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus says that John the Baptist coming on the scene is fulfilling in part this voice, this messenger that's gonna speak of the one that's coming. And John is doing just that. He's taking on the role of this Elijah who has to come now. I believe Malachi 4 will have a, a dual kind of fulfillment in the end times during the tribulation when God sends two witnesses to the earth from heaven. Many believe that one of those witnesses is going to be Elijah. Elijah, you know, never faced death. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Many believe that he's gonna come back to this earth as one of the witnesses where he will be killed, left in the streets for three days, but then will be taken up to heaven again. And so maybe that Elijah will indeed come back, but here's John now fulfilling this in part. Either way, the coming of John was prophesied by Old Testament prophets some 700 years before he even came. The Bible is so wonderfully put together, filled with prophecy that proves the divinity of scripture, proves that this is no mere man-made put together book. This is not just God inspired, this is God written, this is divine. And so we see these prophets writing of what this one would come and do. Verse three, look at Matthew 3, three. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Matthew quotes from Isaiah 40, verse three, as Matthew's gonna do oftentimes. To, to show the, the written word being fulfilled of the Messiah that's to come. And this is what John was born to do. He was born to prepare the way of the Lord. See, it was a common practice for roads to be smoothed out, potholes to be filled. Whenever a king was coming into town somewhere, whenever a king was coming to visit, they'd make sure all the roads were, were cleared, that there was nothing impeding that king and giving him a rough journey. It allowed that king to come in smoothly and, and, and be welcomed into the city. That's kind of the idea here. Isaiah 43 has reference to uh, Israel being led out of captivity from Babylon, coming back to their city, Jerusalem, to rebuild the city and the temple. And so the word is going forth to Israel. Hey, listen, make sure there's nothing that's gonna obstruct you, impede you, or distract you from coming back on this mission, from coming back to do what God's calling you to do. And in the same way for us, as John is preaching, 
hey guys, get all those things out of the way. That's restricting you, blocking you from hearing from the Lord, from receiving from the Lord and giving your lives to the Lord. That's the same word for us. Are there things in our lives that have been crooked, that need to be straightened out? Are there things that have been impeding us from hearing from the Lord and carrying out the work of the Lord? Are there things that are getting in the way, obstructing, distracting? Well, as much as John is saying it to the people of Israel, the word is saying it to us today. Straighten out those paths. Not out of a religious requirement, but because Jesus wants to have his way with us for our good. Don't let anything get in the way and restrict Jesus from having his way in our lives. Let our lives be about Jesus and nothing but Jesus. Now, John, you know, could have been a guy that sort of let this mission go to his head. I mean, he's a, this is a pretty significant role he's got. Not only is he the cousin of Jesus, could have really used that to his advantage, but I mean, he's got a pretty significant role, a role that prophets have prophesied 700 years ahead or before that, that he'd be accomplishing and doing. And he's the guy that the Lord has, has chosen to do it. He could have come on the scene, you know, with an entourage, flashy robes, some bing, but many comes, or bling, I should say, but he comes humbly. I have no idea what bling is. I just, I can't even say the word, right? I'm like, I have none of it. I got nothing. But John comes very humbly. He's not looking to make himself look good. He's looking to exalt Jesus. He's not trying to shine the light on him. He's shining the light on Jesus. In fact, John would, uh, John would say in, in John 3, verse 30, that he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. That's the attitude of John here. I love that. Notice how he comes. Look at verse 4. John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey, right? What a guy. I mean, this is like the original hippie right now, right? This is a Jesus revolution of a whole different sort going on right now, okay? I mean, John comes on the scene. He's not the kind of guy that you would expect or think like this is gonna be the forerunner of the Messiah. Certainly Jesus is gonna have somebody more, more dignified than a guy with, you know, grasshopper legs hanging out of his teeth. Like this is seeming like not the right fit. But don't you love that Jesus isn't looking for the people that have it all together, that look the sharpest, but he's just looking for willing vessels, simple people that he can work through. He can use anybody. If he's using a guy like John the Baptist in camel's hair, you know, belt around his waist. And in fact, he's looking very much like Elijah, as we've talked about him kind of fulfilling this role of, of the Elijah that is to come. He's looking very much like Elijah because Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8 as a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And here's John the Baptist looking much the same. But look at, as we read on here, verse five, then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now this is where things get interesting because as John goes on the wilderness, he's drawing a crowd. He's out in the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, just uh, west of the, the Jordan River, uh, just east of Jerusalem, not far from there. And people started coming out to him from the surrounding regions and they're getting baptized. The crowds took his words to heart and they began straightening out their crooked paths. They began, as it says there, confessing their sins at the end of verse six, getting dipped in the Jordan as a symbolism of cleansing and of new life. Now, 
Baptism wasn't a new thing in this day. John's not doing something out of the ordinary. Baptism was very familiar to people in this day because Jews would baptize Gentile converts to Judaism as a way of kind of bringing them into the fold. They baptized them. Uh, John um, was believed to be a member of the Essenes that were there in the Judean wilderness in, in Qumran, where they would take, you know, often ritualistic baths and dip themselves in water. That's not what John is doing here. He's baptizing, but this is a very familiar kind of act. It's a big part of the ministry, which is why he's known as John the Baptist. It's not because he's founded a denomination that's popular today. No, that's not the idea. It's because he was baptizing people. He's John the Baptist. Now, to be clear, John's baptism was not for salvation. It was rather a sign of a repentant heart. It was an outward demonstration of what was taking place inwardly. And that's what baptism is for us today as well. Being baptized doesn't save you. It's just the public outward demonstration of what God has already done inwardly. It's showing that we're laying down the old life We've been washed clean through the grace of God and receive that forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. We've been cleansed. We come up now a new creation in Christ. Our baptism actually differs quite differently from John's because we are baptized into Christ. Now, not only did John have large crowds gathering around and seeing all that's going on and participating now in these baptisms, but he drew some crowds of an interesting sort, a different sect of people that we're going to become all too familiar with through the gospel of Matthew. Look, it's, look at what we read on in verse 7 here, and we see these guys. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. <clears throat> Imagine this, <clears throat> John, <clears throat> excuse me, sees these guys and what a welcome, right? Brood of vipers. Can you imagine just being welcomed to church that way? Hey, you brood of vipers, turn to Matthew with me, you bunch of people. Like, I mean, not a great little encouraging word. You see kind of the tension that's already here before we even encounter anything about these guys. Why is there such tension? Well, the Pharisees, they were a strict group of religious Jews. The, their whole thing was the interpreting of the law and their traditions. And they were bent on seeing these things carried out to the letter of the law. So much so that they went beyond what the word was really even saying. They were an extremely self-righteous group. They looked at all the things that they did as kind of putting them in favor with God and putting them in a place above other people. Nobody else could be as righteous as they were. In fact, their very name, Pharisees mean separated ones. And no doubt they kind of separated themselves from the general public, made themselves look better. But it could also apply to how they separate themselves to, again, the law to try to uphold it, fulfill it in a sense. And they did it very religiously. They were an influential group in the synagogue, which truly, again, separated themselves from anything that they deemed as sinful. And again, just breaking some of their traditions they saw as very sinful. And so this group, the Pharisees, are the ones that gave Jesus the most trouble, the most opposition. They were the religious leaders. They should have been the ones that were welcoming. And right there going, oh, the Messiah that we've been waiting for is here, finally. But they gave Jesus the most opposition because they questioned his non-observance of some of their oral laws and traditions. 
So that's the Pharisees, and we're gonna hear a lot about them through Matthew. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were a wealthy, upper-class Jewish priestly party. They were the aristocrats. They were more liberal and were in charge of the temple at services and concessions. They only held to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, known as the Pentateuch, and they were very materialistic. They did not believe in angels, spirits, or the resurrection of the dead. It was very sad, you see, their view. You gotta take it when you have it, guys, sorry. <clears throat> so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two major parties of the Jewish council. They were often at odds with each other. They grumbled over their different views and they, they fought and, and argued over these things. They were the ones that were fighting for control of the nation. The Pharisees were legalists. The Sadducees were liberals, liberalists, all right? Liberals, I should say. However, when it came to opposing Jesus, they were a unified bunch, kind of joined together over a, a common enemy. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are introduced to us. And John is well familiar with these guys as is evidenced by his greeting of them, brood of vipers. That's not a, a term of endearment, you know, you kind of throw out there here in Jewish language. No, it was harsh language, it would seem, but John is wanting to be sure that they're not just slithering their way in here for their customary rebuke. He knew that they were coming out to the wilderness just to kind of maintain control. What's really going on here? You got a lot of crowds. These should be people following us. What's going on here? We got to have our hand in this. And John, no doubt, saw them coming out just for their regular rebuke of things that were going on. They already felt that they were, these religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, already thought that they were all good because of their heritage. See, many Jews felt that just being born into the family of Abraham was enough to grant salvation. A Jew, they felt, can never go to hell. So there's no worry of wrath for these guys. There's no concern of future judgment. That's why John kind of sarcastically says, who warned you of the wrath to come? Are you here because you're worried about these things? Because typically they weren't. They thought, we're all good. We're born in Abraham. So he knew that they were there more to try and control the situation rather than submit to the work of God. And John's really just getting the heart issue here. It's always, you know, the issue at hand is always matters of the heart, right? And if they want to be truly right with God, he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And again, as we've seen, repentance is more than just sorrow you express or tears you shed. It's a lifestyle. It's a it's a change, a life change. And it's gonna show itself through the fruit that you bear. It's a life that has turned from willful sins and has now put their faith in God with a desire to walk in obedience to him. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20 that by their fruits, you'll know them. And so John has seen these groups of people coming and he's saying, bear fruits worthy of repentance because by your fruits we'll know you, and there's been no fruit in your life that's shown an attitude of repentance and humility. These brood of vipers weren't interested in a changed life. They were more about putting on a show and, and, and having their life appear as this model of righteousness that everybody had to live up to their kind of standard, that they were the only ones that were really carrying out the law of God. And yet, as much as they were putting on a show, Jesus, in fact, called them on it. He called them, what, hypocrites time and time again which really meant just they were actors. They were putting on a show, but they were doing it for public praise. They weren't living for the praise of God. 
They were living for themselves, self-righteousness and wanting their own accolades heralded by the people. So John goes on to say here in verse nine, look at that with me, Matthew 3, 9. And he says, do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. <clears throat> Again, these religious leaders relied upon their human birthright. Since they were descendants of Abraham, they thought they had an automatic ticket to heaven. But understand something, everybody. The natural birth does not provide that. We need a spiritual birth. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. That confused Nicodemus, Jesus had to explain that. You need to be born of the spirit. You need a new birth. Just because you were a child of Abraham didn't make you a child of God. And it's the same with us. You may have the most godliest grandparents or, or, or parents, but having a Christian heritage, growing up in a Christian home does not guarantee you going to heaven. You don't get in because your great grandpa was a, a great pastor or something like that. You don't get in by heritage. You get in by personal faith. It's not by being connected to one another. It's by being connected to Jesus that brings salvation. God does not have any grandkids, my friends, and you need to be sure that you are in the faith and to put your trust in Jesus yourself personally. And look at what John goes on to say, verse 10. And even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. See, many believe that the Messiah would come with judgment at his first coming, but not judgment towards them. It'd be judgment towards the Romans, towards the enemies of Israel, towards all those that were oppressing them. But John Howard says, listen, the ax is laid to the root of the trees here. These religious leaders may have thought they had good roots. They may have thought that they were the very roots of, of Israel, that they were the ones, you know, holding things together. But John says, ax is laid to the root. See, they may have thought they had good roots, but if it's not producing fruit worthy of repentance and leading them to a right relationship with God, then, then watch out. And that foreshadows what Jesus himself would say in John uh, 15, verse five to six, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. Notice this, if anyone does not abide in me, <clears throat> he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Those are some serious words there. But notice this, Jesus says, what do you need to do? Abide in me. See, when we talk about bearing fruits of repentance, a lot of us can be sitting there going, well, what kind of fruit do I need to bear? What do I need to do? How do I muster this up? I need to go home and I need to start putting this in, I need to start doing and doing and working and working. No, that's not what we're saying. Jesus makes it clear, abide in him. See, a branch does not have to sit here and hang on the tree and go, man, I gotta really push out some fruit here, man. Oh, come on, get growing, no. The branch doesn't need to worry about that. What does the branch need to do? Just be connected to the tree. And fruit is inevitable. It's the natural byproduct of being connected. For you today, just be abiding in Christ. Be connected to him. Have your faith in him. Turn to him by repentance, but now the fruit of repentance will naturally come as you simply abide in the vine, which is Jesus Christ. That's all he's saying. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were not bearing any fruit because they were not connected to God. They were not joined to him. 
So John goes on to say in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice again John's humility here. He says, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. You know, it was the job of the lowest slave in the house for guests when they came in to, to remove the shoes and wash their feet. John is basically saying, I'm not even worthy. I'm, I'm taking the, the position below that of the lowest slave. That's John's humility. And again, not shining the light on him, but wanting to shine the light on Jesus. And he knew that his baptism was just a preparatory one. It was to prepare people to receive Jesus. He knew, John knew very clearly the prominence of Christ, but he also revealed the preeminence of Jesus' baptism. John realized that his baptism is so inferior to that of Christ. Now, John's baptism was one that demonstrated a change, but it could never bring about that change. Okay, catch that. John's baptism demonstrated a changed life, but it could never effectually bring about any kind of change in that person. Jesus' baptism, however, will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus will give us now, all those that put their faith in him, will give us the enabling power of the Holy Spirit taking residence in us that allows us now to carry out a changed life. He gives us the power to do that. The word that Jesus will do will be that purifying, cleansing, and purging work from the inside out. That's why his work is greater. It's more complete. Now that work ultimately came on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, right? Think about the time that Jesus was with his disciples and getting ready to go. He's preparing them. And all through the ministry of Jesus, his disciples, you know, were struggling, making mistakes, messing up through his ministry. I'm sure they're all thinking, Jesus, you cannot leave us, man. We're gonna fall apart, man. We're gonna undo all the good things that you've done. This is not gonna be good. You can't leave us. But Jesus knew he wasn't leaving them. He knew he was supplying them with the power that was needed. And in fact, he says in Acts 1, verse eight, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's what happened in Acts 2 as they were all waiting in the upper room. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with the tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. My friends, God is not relying on you to carry out the work. He's not relying on you to change your life. He wants you to come into just the simple surrender and submission of his rule and his reign in your life and he supplies you with the filling of the Holy Spirit to enable and empower you to live this life. And it's to be an ongoing work. Be ye continually filled, Ephesians tells us. Are you relying upon the Holy Spirit? Are you praying daily, Lord, fill me fresh and anew today. I need your Holy Spirit, not just filling me, but overflowing in me. So again, it's not the light shining on me, but that light shining on you through the Holy Spirit at work in me. That's what we so desperately need. Now, Many have seen that this baptism that John touches on when he says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire is kind of a, a together, kind of a, a package deal. 
that the Holy Spirit comes, fills us, and just as they had tongues of fire resting on them, that there's this purifying work that, that he'll do, and that is all true, no doubt about it. But I believe that this baptism of fire is a different work. And I think verse 12 makes that very clear to us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for believers, whereas the baptism of fire, I would say, is for unbelievers. Why do I say that? Look at what we read in verse 12. He says this, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, that sounds like judgment to me. And that's what's in mind here by the baptism of fire. See, this winnowing fan in his hand and the wheat in the barn, well, that's speaking of this process by which they would separate the wheat kernels from the husks and the, and the chaff. The winnowing fan was like this pitchfork. They would pick up the stalks of wheat and throw it up in the air and the wind would blow away the, the chaff and the straw, letting the heavier pure grain fall back to the ground on the threshing floor. And all the wheat would be collected and brought in the barn, but the chaff would be gathered and burned. And again, that speaks judgment. Jesus would refer to this, I believe, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46, when he talks about at his second coming, the end of the tribulation, when he gathers the nations and he separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep are all those that have done his will and he gathers them in and brings them into the kingdom of God. The goats, however, are those that have opposed him, rejected him, and they are sent off into judgment and death. Hey, those are heavy things to talk about, but it's the reality, my friends. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it can mean peace and blessing to those who will receive King Jesus, or it'll be accompanied with judgment and misery to those who oppose the kingship of Jesus. Where do you stand today? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come but that's a question that every person needs to determine in their hearts today. Jesus has come to save every person and to bring forgiveness of sin and to cleanse and empower you to live this life for him. And it's the only way into heaven. There's no other way but through faith in Jesus Christ. But he's made it all so easy. He's come and he's died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He rose again to secure life. And what he's calling all of us to do is something very simple. Repent, understand your sin and turn from it, but change your direction. Put your faith now in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as the one that cleanses you, forgives you, and makes you new. Have you done that today? There was a story told of a worship team. They're gone, okay. I don't know if they missed the cue. Worship team, please come up. There we go. You were all chatting back there, just living it up, having fun, ignoring the message as usual. That's okay. It's all right. You have one more service to atone for yourselves. Listen. There's a story told of a, a pioneer family traveling across the Western Plains in a covered wagon. They watched in horror as a huge prairie fire began to rush toward them with a strong driving wind. They were afraid that they'd be taken out by the fire, but the father 
reacted quickly, jumped out and quickly lit the dry prairie grass around their wagon. And as the fiery set burned downwind, he then pulled his wagon onto the burned out area and his family stood there as the fire continued to rage toward them. His daughter yelled, oh, daddy, we're gonna get burned. But the father replied, it's okay. The fire can't touch us where the fire has already burned. See, they found safety where the fire has already been. And there's one place where the fire of God's judgment has already been poured out against sin. And that's at the cross of Jesus Christ. And you can choose to wait and stand before God at the final terrible judgment where you don't have a leg to stand on on your own or you can choose to stand at the cross where God's wrath for sin has already burned and be protected and be safe. I don't know about you, but I'm standing at the cross of Jesus. I'm choosing to walk in, in repentance and receive that forgiveness for salvation that's freely given by receiving Jesus Christ. Have you done that today? Whether you're watching online or here in this room or in the overflow room, you have two choices. You can allow Jesus to take that judgment of God for you, which he did when he died on the cross. He was allowing God to pour out his wrath and his judgment for the sin of the world so that you could be spared. You can receive that, or you can wait and receive the judgment of God yourself in that day by which you'll be consumed. There's no option for eternal life there. It's only found through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you turned to Jesus? Have you allowed him to occupy the throne of your heart? Have you given him rule and reign in your life and said, Jesus, come and be my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me my sin because it's only found in you. If you've not done that today, whether you're at home, here, and you're convicted right now, you're, you're feeling your heart, I need to get right with God. Would you pray a simple prayer like this? Close your eyes, everybody. And if that's you, would you just pray a simple prayer like this? You can pray this in your heart as I say it. Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner and I'm in need of saving. I'm in need of your forgiveness. I recognize I can't do that for myself. It's only found in you. So Jesus, thank you that you died on a cross to take the judgment that I deserved. But you did that so that I could be set free and made new and given new life and eternal life. So Jesus, I repent, I turn to you, I put my faith in you. Be my Lord and my Savior. Be the King of my life and take up occupation on the throne of my heart. Be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. If you pray a prayer like that, the Bible says that you're a new creation. Old things have passed, we build all things and become new. You're a child of God. Receive that by faith. And if you've prayed that, would you let us know? If you're here today, come and talk to one of the pastors or those that'll be in the front here. If you're online, email the church because we'd love to follow up with you and share more with you of just joy and excitement of what God has done here.